First Corinthians 15, Paul's incomparable chapter on the resurrection, has already, before our text, which begins in verse 35, he's already dealt with the resurrection of Christ himself. In fact, Paul brings forward something like 600 witnesses to that resurrection. And then he has dealt with the resurrection of the dead in general. And here in our text, he deals with what we might call the how question. That is, how and with what type of body are the dead raised? It's a natural question. Inquisitive people ask questions along these lines all the time. And so we'll look at this passage under three headings. They're there in your bulletin. Seeds and bodies, Adam and Christ, and then transformation and victory. So first, seeds and bodies. In verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, there are two questions. How are the dead raised? Meaning, how is it even possible? And with what kind of body will they come? The Corinthians, a Greek Greek city in the ancient world, some of them anyway, cannot even conceive of the resurrection. And to the extent that they might be able to conceive of something like a bodily resurrection, it appears that they thought of it and some still think of it this way, as a kind of resuscitation. Like a reanimating of the corpse. So in verse 36, Paul responds and tells them that the answer, or at least something like the answer, is lying in their very hands. What you sow, he says, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Doesn't our Lord Jesus say the same thing of his own death and resurrection? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so what the apostle is saying here is the mystery of the resurrection of the body is not pure continuity. It's not like Jesus is raised and then resumes an existence just like the one he had before Good Friday. It's not resuscitation. Notice what the text says. What you sow, you do not sow. You do not plant the body that is to be. You sow the naked seed. And the seed, I mean, the seed has no visible evidence of its future mode of life. But the apostle says, God, verse 38, gives it a body. God gives the seed a body, a new way of being. He gives it as he pleases by his sovereign action. And each seed, Paul says, gets its own type of, if you will, resurrection body. It's a pretty straightforward analogy, I think. So it will be, he says in verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. It's not resuscitation. The body is sown perishable. Paul says, 
It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor or humiliation. And it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. Sown in death, that is. Sown into the grave in weakness. Raised in power. There's a stark contrast between our dying dead bodies and the risen body. Now, the Corinthians, like everyone else in the world, would agree with the first half of these comparisons. The body decays. The body becomes corrupt. The body becomes a a thing of, if you will, dishonorable thing. It returns to the earth. We leave the world in a humiliating fashion. Our bodies suffer great indignity. They are sown perishable, corrupt, dishonored, weak. It's the second half of this set of comparisons that the ancient world would have found difficult to grasp. That the body is going to be raised in glory and power and imperishability. So even though there's no pure continuity in the resurrection of the dead, there is continuity somehow. And you can see it here by the repetition of the little word it. It is sown, it is raised. It is sown, it is raised. The body that is, ra- that is raised is mysteriously, not by resuscitation, but somehow it is the body that was sown. We are face to face with a great mystery here. This is a kind of continuity that comes with radical transformation. You can see this clearly in verse 44. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. This is a critical juncture in Paul's argument, and it's important that we see the point clearly. A natural body is a body which belongs to this age, to this order of things, to this creation. It's the seed before it's given the new way of being by God. And a spiritual body does not mean a ghost or some sort of immaterial body. Just as a spiritual man or woman is still a man or a woman, a spiritual body is still a body. And so when Paul says a spiritual body, he means a body quickened, a body animated by the power of the Spirit, a body that has entered this new mode of existence, a body which belongs to the age to come, a glorious, indestructible, immortal body. That's what the resurrection of the body means. It transforms the body from a natural body to a spiritual body. From a body sown in dishonor and corruption and weakness in this age to a body belonging to the new creation. And so you'll note in this text, you either have one body or the other. No one has both of these bodies. There are two types of bodies and they belong to two different ages, this age and the next age, and they exclude one another. So that's Paul's analogy of seeds and bodies. He's trying to get at this impenetrable mystery of the resurrection. And he continues doing this. The second point is Adam and Christ. And here the apostle goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes back to Genesis 2. And he cites it. 
And he interprets it at the same time. He says, so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So Adam, at his creation, becomes a living soul or a man. And the point here is that he has what Paul is calling a natural body. He belongs to this age, not to the next. Now, notice something interesting here. Paul has moved away. He's moved away from the image of your body being sown in death. Corruptible and weak and dishonored. His point is not simply that there's a difference between the body sown at death and the resurrection body. He's making a broader point here. He's saying that there's a radical difference between bodies, period, that belong to this age, natural bodies, and the body of the age to come. Notice that the reference to Adam refers to Adam at his creation. Even before the fall, Adam has what Paul calls a natural body. Now, the force of this is difficult to get, and it's, and it's often missed. And I had a friend who's, who would point me to this for years, and it took me years and years and years before I realized what he was saying. So let me put this as starkly as possible. Because Paul is doing something quite stark here. What he says in verse 45 about Adam's creation, with that, he's equating, he is equating Adam's sinless Original body, his body in Eden, his natural body, he's equating that with corruptible, weak, dishonored bodies sown in death. They are all, Paul says, natural bodies. And his point is then, compared to the coming risen and glorious body, even Adam's body belongs to the old age. Even Adam's body is in the same position as dead, weak, corruptible, dishonored bodies. So great, so stunning, and so new, so unable to be captured by this order is the resurrection. That even the body that Adam had from the hand of God is on the same level as bodies sown into the grave. So the resurrection exceeds always our ability to grasp it. We are always grasping it and yanking it down to our, shrinking it down to our, our world or our concepts. So, Paul continues here, he says, the the first Adam, he says, became a living being. And the last Adam, Christ, becomes a life-giving spirit. This means that Christ has received a risen body or a glorious body. And he's now the source of spiritual life for men. He lives by this indestructible, immortal, divine life. That's the proclamation of the resurrection. The resurrection does not set Jesus back to before Good Friday. 
It doesn't even set him back to where Adam was in the garden. It ushers him into the new age of incorruptible, immortal, indestructible divine life. And he's thus the source of life. He's the life-giving one. So, let me summarize this point, because I know this point can be difficult. Paul is saying there's two modes of existence. And thus there are two bodies. And the transformation, he says, from one to the other is so radical. The resurrection is so stupendous that all bodies, Adam's original sinless body and the bodies in every cemetery, they are all on the same level. They are all part of the old creation. They're all natural bodies. They're all bodies awaiting the spiritual heavenly body which Christ, the risen one, and he alone has received and which he will bestow on his people. And so the third point then has to do with the implications of this transformation and victory. And here the chapter, long chapter, I commend it to your reading. It's wonderful Easter Sunday reading. It comes to this great crescendo. In verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This, of course, does not mean that we don't have bodies in the kingdom of God. Paul has been arguing precisely the opposite. It does mean, though, and I hope this is clear, it means the body, in its present form, in its current mode of existence, as a natural body, is not fit for the age of resurrection. You can see that in verse 50. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. And then he says, behold, or listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. And the content of this mystery is, we shall not all sleep. A euphemism for die. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed or transformed. Notice here, even the living at Christ's return need this transformation. Now, this may be commonplace to us Westerners, some of us who've been shaped by the Christian tradition, but it would be a pure shock to the Corinthians and to many in the ancient Greek world who had a distorted view of being spiritual. The Corinthians thought they were already living the heavenly life. Many Christians still often speak this way or inclined to speak this way. You know what this text does? It serves as a bracing reminder that all, not part, but all of our Christian experience in this age falls radically short of what is needed to inherit the eternal kingdom of God. This perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And so Paul is saying to inherit the coming kingdom, we all, living and dead, Adam and all his offspring, need radical transformation. In the nature of the case, the apostle says, flesh and blood, embodied human beings as currently constituted, cannot. It is impossible that they could inherit the kingdom of God. This is why the coming glory should be large in our imaginations. It should loom in our minds. We should groan and yearn and long for it. 
Nothing short of resurrection from the dead, Paul says, fits anybody or any body, no matter how holy for the age to come. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of ascetic discipline. There's no amount of praying. There's nothing you can do. This is a sovereign. Resurrection is a sovereign act of God. Flesh and blood, as they are currently constituted, cannot inherit the kingdom. There's a a transformation of cosmic proportions needed. That is what was happening. That was the beginning of what was happening in Jesus' resurrection. And the transformation in view here is holy future. It occurs, the text says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. A reference to the second advent of our Lord, the coming of Jesus. Then Paul turns to the utter certainty of this transformation. This transformation is necessary, he says, but it's certain. Notice he says in verse 53, the perishable or this perishable body must, must clothe itself with the imperishable. This mortal body must Clothe itself with immortality. Immortality is not natural. It is certainly not earned. It must be given. And when this happens, at Christ's appearance, then he says, the saying shall come to pass that is written. And here he quotes from Isaiah, which was read in the Old Testament lesson this morning. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he quotes this famous taunting of death from Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, death taunts human existence. It hangs over it, mocks it, taunts it. And it counts up the toll of perishable and corrupt and weak and dishonored bodies sown into the grave, one after another, after another, and after another. It mocks our plans, it mocks our dreams, it mocks our hopes, it taunts. And what the gospel does is it answers that deepest, most pervasive, basic fact of human existence. Namely, death itself. And it assures us that the taunter will be taunted. That in Christ, the last taunt will be given. The last enemy, Paul has told us earlier in this chapter, is death. And yes, Christ has destroyed it, but it won't be fully destroyed until Christ appears. In the body of the risen Jesus Christ, and only there, are these words of the prophets already fulfilled. The risen humanity of Jesus Christ is the only immortal, non-vaporizing humanity in heaven and on earth. Everything else is slipping through your hands even as you grasp it. He, however 
having been raised, is replete, full of life. He's radiant in splendor. He's far above all things. And he's present to his church. So here, Paul importantly reminds us that while the resurrection is future, Christ himself is raised. And we are in Christ. And so he moves to the present tense. And he says, thanks be to God who gives us, even now, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This great transformation in view, it is future, to be sure, but it is certain already in the body of the risen Jesus. And thus the cry, where, O death, is your sting, your victory, that can be for us. A present cry, an exultant cry. It's an astonishing cry. It's a cry of amazement. This is what the resurrection of the dead is. This is the Christian claim. The claim of the gospel is that it goes to the fundamental, raw, taunting wound of human existence. And so, this event can't be Captured by this age. The best Paul can say is it's kind of like a seed that's sown and then comes forth as something else. But there's two ages, two orders. And so the resurrection of Christ is the great disorienting orientation. It's a kind of vertigo which reorients the cosmos. And it promises the cosmoses and our own healing, our own integration even in the midst of history's continual taunting disintegration. We shall die. But the apostle says the grave will not have the victory because this mortal must put on immortality. And that future transformation means we can currently now triumph with joy. So finally, in verse 58, Paul thinks there are enormous ethical implications for this. He does. These are the implications, if you will, of that simple line in the creed, which summarizes our text here. I believe in the resurrection of the body. We say that every single week. That's a summary of this text. And Paul thinks that this high theology that he's been expounding here is highly practical. And so he concludes with an exhortation. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The words in the text here for work and labor mean vigorous toil. They actually mean fatigue-inducing work. I mean, how else could someone live who believes in this text? The Apostle is saying, because your transformation is certain, and because that future victory is already being given to you, this means that in the hand of the risen one, nothing is lost. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is in vain. 
Nothing goes for naught. And so the apostle is saying here to the church, get your skin in the game. Live like the resurrection of the body is a future certain reality. Get all your skin in the game, he says. Get your whole embodied being into the game, into the toil, he says, the fatigue-inducing toil of the Lord. Nobody who serves the risen one should die well-rested. We should labor and labor and labor. Weak, frail, scattered as our labors are. As our bodies themselves will be given new glory, so your labors will be transformed and they will be made fruitful by the mighty resurrection power of God and Jesus Christ. That's what the apostle is saying. So he turns to the church and he says, So... If this is true, stand fast. Don't be moved. Give yourself fully. Abound at all times. Always in the toil of the Lord. What else would you give yourself to if the resurrection is true? What what should the apostles say? The resurrection is true, so try to lead a, a moderate American Christian life where you're a decent moral person and you give some money to charity and hope for the best at the end. That's not how Paul thinks. Paul thinks either spit on the resurrection or believe the resurrection. But stop fiddling with the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, fine. Go eat, drink, and be merry, he says. Tomorrow we die. If there is a resurrection, stand fast. Don't be moved. Abound. Labor. Give yourself fully in the toil of the Lord because nothing will be lost. Live and act according to your confession. You believe in the resurrection of the body. Amen.